0: Hello and welcome to another episode of October Surprise, a podcast created for citizens by citizens in Pennsylvania's new 16th Congressional District. I'm Jim Roddy, a lifelong resident of Northwest Pennsylvania and your host for today's podcast. A little bit of background of our podcast before we get going. October Surprise features a series of interviews designed to educate listeners in Erie, Crawford, Mercer, Lawrence, and Butler counties on key issues that face both our district and our two congressional candidates, incumbent Mike Kelly and Challenger Ron Dinicola. On each podcast we'll also discuss ethical leadership, which unfortunately is in rare supply in Washington DC in twenty eighteen. We'll do a lot of talking today and throughout the month of October on this podcast, but our ultimate goal is action. For democracy to work, you have to participate. We can't be bystanders. So at a minimum, that means being an informed voter. You can help by sharing episodes of October Surprise with your family and at least one or two friends, those on-the-fence voters, those people who only occasionally vote in midterms or maybe never vote in midterms. The ultimate action is to vote on Election Day. Let's surprise the special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November 6, and once again put people first. And finally, I'm not a political veteran or a campaign strategist. This is my first foray into political media. I don't have all the answers. But together, we're going to learn what's happening in our district by talking with elected officials, grassroots leaders, and extraordinary citizens from PA-16 in each episode. Our special guest today is Tyler Titus. He's a native of Titusville and currently lives in Erie, where he's very active in our community. He's a member of the City of Erie School Board. He's on the Board of Directors for the Crime Victim Center and the Greater Erie Alliance for Equality. He's a licensed professional counselor who regularly presents at local and national conferences on the topics of trauma, suicide, and ways that communities can reach out to underserved populations. He was also involved with the Jefferson Society on a project that helped raise awareness about the opioid crisis in our community. And Tyler has received national attention as the first openly transgender elected official in the state of pennsylvania when he was elected to the school board in november 2017 if you want to read more about uh, tyler he's been featured in the washington post and the daily beast there's an article titled how tyler titus became a transgender hero so tyler thanks for your time today
1: welcome to october surprise hey thank you so much for letting me jump on your show with you jim Sure
0: happy to uh, to talk with you and learn more uh, we 're going to talk about two very important issues that are facing our community today: opioids and education i 'm going to start with i don 't want to start with softballs i 'm going to throw you a, a fastball that has some uh, some a curveball on it as well. So okay. can you start by tying those two? Together, so how is the opioid crisis negatively impacting the educational system and children in our area, and then vice versa? How are failures in the educational system uh, exacerbating the opioid crisis?
1: So that's a, that's a great question, um, and so what I can tell you is what we're seeing is a lot of our our kids who are growing up with um, parents who maybe are struggling with addiction or family members who have addiction. Um, you know, their school becomes one of the least of their worries, essentially. Um, so they're missing out, they're truant, they are, are skipping altogether, their grades are dropping, we're seeing high dropout rates with, with our students, um, and the opioid epidemic is absolutely impacting that, especially um, when you start to get maybe to a little bit more of our rural um, uh, districts around us. But one of the things that we, we really kind of honed in on is seeing that um that a lot of what what was happening around the opioid epidemic um, was stemming from earlyhood traumas, traumas that were going on. And so when we see a, a parent who maybe had their own childhood experience with trauma grow up um, and then m- maybe f- – find some self-medication through opioids, um, either prescribed or or illegal, that they were perpetuating the trauma cycle through neglect, um, through, you know, lack of presence, and that it was just carrying on these generations of, of, of addiction. Um, so yes, there is a genetic component to things, but we're also seeing the environmental influence that was having an immediate impact on, on the kids and their investment um, in, within the education. Um, and when the education system fails, you have kids who who don't really have a way out. And so when the resources are scarce within our district um, to, to not get kids in the sports or the extracurricular activities or to keep them invested in coming to school, they don't really have a way to break the cycle, and the cycle continues to perpetuate because it's like all these systems are lining up for the perfect storm for these kids to just almost stay stuck, like there's just no way out for them
0: yeah and it is a, a cycle, and you mentioned about how it impacts uh, rural uh, communities from an educational standpoint as well. in another episode, uh, we talked with Judy Hines, who is uh, was a teacher for thirty five and a half years in the, in Mercer county and that 's exactly what she talked about is in terms of the parental support isn 't there to get the kids to school, and even if the kids are going to school to push them to do to do their homework. I guess is that the same thing that you 're talking about that you 're seeing in the city of Erie
1: as well? Yeah, It is absolutely. When we're seeing kids be parentified at a really early age. We're seeing, you know, six, seven, eight year olds now becoming like primary caregivers in their house mm-hmm. and they're responsible for the younger siblings, getting them off the bus, helping them with their own homework. And so when you have a, a younger child trying to to fill in roles, um, of a parents, you know, the, the first thing that's going to go is their own their own homework, um, because really, what is a math problem to a kid who's worried um, if, you know, mom and dad are safe, or if they're worried, um, what are we going to eat tonight? They, they are that, that's the last thing that they're going to pay any attention to.
0: Yeah, uh, parentified. That's a, a term I've never heard before, and unfortunately, it's it's happening uh, more and more. Um, let's keep going down the path, talking about the opioid crisis in Erie and the Jefferson Society project that I mentioned uh, in the intro. So the group met with state and local officials, addicts in recovery, parents who are kids, uh, parents whose kids are recovering addicts, family members who lost loved ones, and healthcare professionals. So uh, tell me, uh, besides what you've talked about already, what did you hear from those? folks, and what did you learn from them?
1: First off, I think um, that, that whole project absolutely changed me, and I know that it changed several of us who are, who are involved in it. Um, sitting down with family members uh, who, who had lost someone to the opioid epidemic through, through overdose um, or watching the family members currently struggle, uh, you can see the pain and the hurt on, on these family members, and it, you can't help but take some of it on and hold some of it with them. Um, what we were finding, you know, as as we were traveling through this is uh, the resources are, they're there, like the help is out there, but the stigma is so uh, damaging um, that people don't want to engage in the services, uh, you know, because they don't want to get labeled as an addict. They don't want to get labeled as mentally unstable or all these other things. So it begs the question, you know, like what what is um, what comes first? Is it the mental the mental health issues that people are afraid to get uh, services for? So then they go on to self medicate, um, you know. It's, it's, so there's just so many things that we were seeing that played a role in this, and that it, it wasn't one little like aha, uh-huh, if we just fix this, everything would be better. There were so many things that crossed and intersect, um for this to change that it was really hard to flush out <laughs> where's this quick solution because there isn't one.
0: Yeah, there's no quick solution and um you said you sat down with uh folks who had lost loved ones to the opioid crisis and I've never talked about this publicly before but back on uh, April 2nd of this year uh my younger brother Zachary um uh, who was uh we adopted him he was 16 years younger than me uh a few weeks short of his 32nd birthday uh overdosed for the last time and and passed away and so this opioid thing really hit home you know, for me, and I can say for years, I felt helpless. Where you try to push him towards help, he'd get some help, then he'd get back with his friends, and um, it was just just felt like such a helpless situation. I guess. Is there? Is there any hope that you can give uh again i I feel bad like I can say there's no hope for me now you know he's he's gone, uh but what's the hope that we can turn this thing around that this problem can stop getting worse and we can start uh uh you know keeping more of these young folks around so um what, can you give us some hope, Tyler in terms of is there a way out of this?
1: So, Jim, I just wanted to say that I think your story uh, resonates with a lot of the people that I had talked to, where they had this sense of, of hopelessness or helplessness, like, where do we even go from here? Like, we love them. Um, why, why can't they get the help that they need? Why do they keep going back to this? Um, and one thing that we, you know, just talking with a lot of the those who are in the, in the addiction arena, um, like the professionals who are working with, with those struggling with addiction, um, we often forget that there is brain brain changes that occur when somebody starts adding in aesthetics um, and and so it doesn't even it becomes almost like a version of the person but not the person that we know and love they're in there they are but they become um you know overtaken by by the disease um and so i did find a lot of hope though like talking to a, a lot of you know, the the providers and then talking to Dr. Rachel Levine just about some of the things that she was, uh, you know, uh, pushing for for in the state of Pennsylvania, is we have a a much um, stronger understanding of what was causing the addiction, Um, you know, the over-prescriptions that we were uh, prescribing that we were seeing, um, you know, and, and then all of a sudden there was like this cutoff, so we had created, medically created, um, this whole generation of, of addicts th- through pain pills. And then we, we cut off that supply. And so when you cut that off, their brains are still, and their bodies are still needing. And so they turn to the streets and they're turning to um, ve- ve- very dangerous <laughs> concoctions yeah. of just trying to chase down that, what their brain is saying that they need. Um, but what, the other thing that we had found is people who need love the most will often ask for it in the most unloving of ways. And that the opposite of addiction or the, the solution to um, creating recovery wasn't necessarily through, um, you know, all these other programs, but it was community, um, creating a sense of community, a place of belonging for, for, these, for, the, for, for addicts so that they're not feeling like they have nowhere, um, and, but for the families who are going through it as well. Um, you know, seeing having another family to connect to—that when this becomes a conversation that we're not afraid to have out loud with other people, we're going to find that almost every person is touched by the opioid epidemic. Right. Maybe it's immediate or maybe it's two steps removed but everyone somehow has a story that's related to this opioid epidemic and if we're able to start talking about it, the stigma goes away and people can get the services that they need because they realize that they're not, I think so often they think that they're, they, they are, you know, this epic failure or they're all these other, like their negative self-talk takes over and there's just a disappointment that this black sheep and they don't want to keep, yeah. you know, hurting and shaming and so they just want to go do this on their own and they get lost in this negative undertone, this world, um, and then the families become you know, subject to anxiety, depression, and all these other things. So once we're able to bring these things to the forefront and let people know that they're not alone and we have this sense of community and rallying behind not just the addicts but the families of addicts, um, I think that we will see a ton of change, but the conversation has to change first.
0: Yeah, and I think people have to understand the depth to which this is affecting our community. And again, I knew about my brother's struggles and, you know, tried to get help for him. He... Again, you know, it was an on and off again kind of thing. But when we talked to the funeral director when we were making the arrangements, he talked about how you know he's in touch with the coroner and, and folks you know other funeral directors in the community about the frequency like that he was handling almost one a week, and then there were reports of overdoses, maybe some that didn't result in death from an eighty something year old person who was trying this to you know relieve uh, pain, getting illegal you know uh, opioids, and then somebody who had a six month old. Where they like you know put uh, something on their you know pacifier to get them to to stop from crying, I mean it was unbelievable, and
1: he told me about the depth of it, just in Erie county,
0: like this is just yeah. in our our little corner of the world the The magnitude is just just overwhelming
1: it 's pretty astronomical when you when you start to look at the numbers, like every year we had gone up and gone up and gone up, and um, part of again what contributes to that is is <laughs> i mean it's it, it's hard to see like okay is it better or is it not better but when we, when we tighten in the rein of the prescribed opioids, what happened is we opened up ourselves to 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 the the synthetics or the ones that people are creating um and those I mean they're not made by chemists they're not made by people who know how to appropriately mix things in, and the key are, you know like we're seeing um the the things that they are mixing with just we there's you can't get to them in time. Like it, it right. hits your body. Um, like the, the the fentanyl that's in them is yep. just it's it's changed the game. Yep. It's changed the game for the for addicts.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just it's it's awful, and so. You know, we're talking about the the crisis, and then let's talk about what we can do about it, and this is in the background of this whole uh, campaign for for Congress. So Mike Kelly has hosted tele halls about op- opioids. He uh, touts how he sponsored a bill a block synthetic opioid shipments to the United States. What are your thoughts, Tyler, on his job performance in this area? Is he doing enough for the things that he's doing? Are they really getting to the heart of the problem, or is more of it just for show kind of on the surface?
1: So my my gut response is <clears throat> it's very convenient that a lot of these things are coming up during election season. It's very convenient so that you know now he's he's taking some stances that people have been um, really trying to get him to take throughout. Um, <clears throat> I had I you know if there's one thing that's bite, uh, like that I've noticed about Mike Kelly it's that I, I actually don't notice him anywhere, um, and that's that's as a constituent that's very frustrating. Um, you know he he somebody that. On this project, we we had reached out to to try to give him um, just you know some insight on on the stuff that we had worked on through the Jefferson, and he he wasn't there. He was he wasn't receptive to to like hey let us just show you what we have learned because it can impact, it can change, it can save lives. The some of this information that we have, Um, and it just he he wasn't present. And then to to respond by sending out oh let's do these these town hall. Phone calls, I think, is is slap in the face really to his constituents. Like, we're looking for connection. We're looking for accountability. We're looking for somebody to, um, you know, take us serious and, and help those (laughs) in that we care about. Um, Mm -hmm. and to just have that be answered through a town hall meeting is, is really, I think, belittling. Um, and it's hard not to lose faith in a, in a leader who's, who's not really leading. Do you think he's conflicted?
0: I don't want to try to read his mind or his motivations, but do you think he's conflicted because of the big money he gets from special interest groups? So first just a global how much, you know, big money there is involved in politics. So, uh, Time Magazine reports opioid makers reportedly spent more than $880 million on lobbyists and political contributions between 2006 and 2015. So that's eight times more than what the gun lobby spent, right? Like people complain about the gun lobbies. This isn't that much. Multiplied by eight, and in Kelly, in particular, he's received tens of thousands of dollars from insurance lobbyists, healthcare lobbyists, and other special interest groups from outside our area. He has, last I looked, 1.1 million dollars from political action committees. Do you think that's like a fundamental flaw in our system, and part of the reason why he might not be taking uh, real action on this?
1: <laughs> so, as a as an advocate. Um, and as a constituent, um, I don't see how money um, could not could not be doing some talking here. Um, you know, it's I find it to be disgusting just how how much I know it's it's a political game and there're chess moves and things that you have to make if you want to if you want to stay in politics. I know that. Um, however, um, when you have special interest groups, um, especially like the ones that we are talking about now today, um, funding such a large part of your your campaign. Um, how could you not be motivated to keep their best interest um, if they are, because it, it's
0: yeah? It, how could it be otherwise? You know, right. how could it, Tyler? If I gave you two million dollars for something, how could you not be motivated to take my phone call or if I want you to do something,
1: do it? How right. could it be otherwise? Because that's that's a huge blow, and you know, and it's not. And Mike Kelly's not he's not alone in 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 that arena. Else, you know, either I think that you know um, we, we see the pharmac- pharmaceutical industry, um, or really any industry that can um, play within a, an addiction on a person, um, like be that, be that even you know just like the caffeine or nicotine, um, really have vested interests in making sure that the politicians that they want and need are in office. Um, and I think that it just really hits home with us on, on this one because we are losing loved ones, and then we're watching somebody who's supposed to be protecting our best interest really protect the best interests of those who are taking our loved ones from us.
0: Right, with the true actions and then lip service otherwise. So uh, Kelly's challenger, Ron DiNicola, has said he will support investing federal resources to increase access to drug treatment and also expand education and prevention programs. He also committed to pass legislation to hold accountable the drug companies who profit and fuel the opioid Epidemic. So, Tyler, is this what our next congressman should do about the opioid crisis? Will that make a positive impact from your perspective?
1: We absolutely need more monies fun- funneled towards um, prevention and intervention and education. That, that absolutely has to occur. Um, we can 't afford to lose any more any more money um, because for every dollar you take is, is essentially you can wrap it up in a, in a life that you are just signing off and saying this isn 't worth it um, and we need somebody to be proactive like that we need somebody who 's going to say you know this is this is an area that we have to do something with now, but bigger than that is you need the person to go after the source so you can 't just keep going um, after this and essentially the, the people are dealing with the symptoms addiction is a, is a symptom of other things um, and they have to be able to go back and say what is what is feeding this um, what's causing addiction to, to happen and we have to we have to start there is it um, people need to be held accountable industries need to be held accountable for creating addicts yes is it that you know we need to get um, better resources to help people process their traumas absolutely that's not even a question. We need to, to build up our education system so that we are able to help people get out of cycles without a doubt. And so I think you need to have people in there who are fighting for all those all those things, for, for this to truly, for us to get ahead of the, of the epidemic.
0: Right. To make a dent in it, like you said, it's got to be really widespread. Um, Just like I think about where there was so much, you know, drunk driving and a lot of it on New Year's Eve. Boy, the days leading up to New Year's Eve, there's just all over the place in terms of these, you know, Lyft and Uber providing free rides, free cab rides, things like that. We've got to let people know that it's, you know, just one phone call away and and get those resources. Right,
1: that there are options and then there, there are helpers out there. There are people ready to act on your behalf to help you to intervene. Um, and that there's no shame in in yep. needing it. There's no shame.
0: So thanks for your insights on uh, the opioid crisis in our community. Let's talk for a few minutes about education. So what are the challenges that you've seen? You have a unique perspective as an Erie citizen, as a counselor, uh, and as a school board member. What are the challenges you're seeing uh, from our education system?
1: Um, the biggest challenge being uh, the 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 – the funding is flawed. The funding formula is—it just simply flawed. Um, Erie is a unique city in that we um, have a very high refugee and immigrant population, so we have a lot of um, students who are, you know, English is the second language. We have a lot of students whose family currently struggle with with poverty, um, generational poverty, um, and so they're maybe not able to contribute as much financially um, versus some of the county schools that we're seeing. So we have a lot of unique things that, that go in, and we are just not <laughs> – the funding formula is not set up in a way that um, supports the schools with these unique issues kind of going on. The other thing that Erie has is we have um, – a lot of charter schools, uh, PA, cyber, you know, the, the online charter schools, and then the brick-and-mortar uh, charter schools. And what people don't understand is that um, I'm all about cho- school choice. I am. But what I'm not about is that um, us, the, the public schools fund. They, it's their fundi- funding that goes into the cyber schools and the charter schools. Um, and so it's, it's literally we are, we are paying for, I don't want to say our competition, but we are paying, but that's what it breaks down to is we, we are paying for, for them to be up and running. And so oftentimes these schools will be able to provide better buildings or provide, you know, smaller classrooms because they can pick and choose who they want. Um, and then the Erie school is the one actually paying the bill for, for all of these things. So we're taking directly out of the hands of the students who need it the most, who need the extra resources, but it's just not there because of the way the funding is set up in the state of Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, in another episode of October Surprise, uh, episode number two, we talked with Jerry Missett. I don't know if you know uh, Jerry at all. He's a retired Erie administrator, longtime principal uh, at Central High School, and that was his big thing in terms of the push to privatize schools is hurting the funding of public schools. And then Judy Hines, who I mentioned earlier, the retired Mercer uh, school teacher, uh she said in another episode that uh, the what people don't understand is schools used to just for refer- provide schooling, and then down in her area, some agricultural education. Well, now, because of a lot of the collapse of the family unit, a lot of times because these families are in poverty, so they have to work when they would otherwise be taking the kids to school or before school care, after school care, the schools have to provide far more services than they had ever before, and they're having the money taken away to go, you know, funnel into some of these other things. Do you see it the same way, Tyler? Do you share their perspective?
1: Yes, and I think you know I get frustrated when I hear, um, you know, just other other community members or, or people refer to our parents, you know, as poor or not trying or lazy or yes. other things. Is because we have so many, um, you know, families now who are, who are working two, three, four jobs. Um, just to try to m- make it through to support their family, um, and, and they're, they're, they're trying. So the problem is not that we have lazy family members um, who aren't invested in education. It's the exact opposite. We have family members who are, who are busting their butts uh, to, to try to keep a house up and running with their kids, but the jobs, the jobs that they are working just don't pay them a wage in which they can provide or only have to work one job. And so we're we are seeing more, you know, Two house like two adults working in a household where uh, before you might have one home um, who were who was able to like interact with the kids. So the the schools now are providing before care, after school care. You know we're 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 trying to get the services in there for like counseling, for doctor appointments, for dental visits, so that we can help the families try to navigate. Um, the economic, economical hardships that they're facing because it, it really it really isn't just about education on like a, you know reading, writing arithmetic anymore. It is all areas that the schools really have become accountable for.
0: Right. And uh, like you said, the parents have to uh, be able to put food on the table, so it's hard for them to just work one job and be able to supply for their family. So, like, I just did the math very quickly, and so if you're talking around $8 an hour for a job, working 40 hours a week, working 50 weeks a year, that's right around $15,000. That's not going to be able to support any sort of a family, so you're going to have to go work a second job that goes and takes away from, um, you know, the, the – uh, you know, obviously moral support, the putting your arm around a kid, you know, the discipline, the teaching, the guidance that parents can give. It's almost, uh, an, almost like an immoral situation where because of the low wages, um, that we are not allowing these parents to take good enough care of their kids, and then we're starving the public schools so they can't provide the services. and these kids are back to, I think what you talked about earlier, this cycle perpetuate this trauma cycle um, of poor education and then not being able to get a good job. I mean, it just seems like that's really where the cycle is for thousands of people in our community.
1: It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And your quick math, I mean, it's just, it's astronomical what we expect um, the school to be able to do, what we expect um, parents to be able to do. Like, we, we keep pointing fingers and say, you're to blame, you're to blame, you're to blame. Um, but really, this is us across the systems. All the systems are playing a role and that people who are in these poverty gaps can't get out. And it is not yeah. for lack of effort. It's not for lack of effort.
0: Yep. And I am all for personal accountability, but one experience that I had that really showed me, um, I'd say, a sub-segment uh, of our community that I'd never experienced before. So I'm going back to 19, this would have been 92, 90 three i 'm a lot older than you, uh, Tyler. Um, and uh, it was my first full time job out of college was placing temporary workers, and so folks would come in and you just realize that they didn 't have the fundamental uh, skill training to in order to uh, go to work in order to have reliable transportation that they were you know had that education as a foundation and I had never realized like oh my parents sent me to school they gave me a ride to school they packed my lunch for me right I had breakfast before I left dinner when I got home so I had that foundation but a lot of these folks if they're not if they grow up in an environment that doesn't have those foundational things and then furthermore the educational system can't provide it how, what do you Expect that they're going to turn out to be, you know, some superstar. There, there are always people who turn it around, but that is the exception rather than the rule. And it seems like we need to have some system in place to help out these kids to build a better future for them and for our community uh, in general.
1: Right. No, you absolutely hit the nail right on the head there. And I will often talk to people about, you know, we hear the word privilege and people start getting really defensive about this word privilege. But there's nothing wrong. We all have a privilege to some degree. Um, like, you know, you just described a great privilege that you had, you know, having um, a ride to school, having transportation, having parents who were who engaged and able to provide certain things to you um, because they weren't having to work, you know, or, or the, the hours before or after whatever right. it was. Right. Um, but there's so many of us who don't understand that it's it, the privileges that we have that have allowed us to get to the places where we are in life are the systems that go into play that work for us and not against us. And there are so many systems that work against especially, especially our black um, males. Uh-huh. They just are not set up to help them succeed. And it's just, I think, we can pretend that it's not happening or we can be aware and do some things about it. Um, but a lot of our systems that are, are supposed to be helping really do cause uh, a lot of hurt um, or they, they keep people stuck. And I don't think that it's an accident. Um, I think that, that there are some systems in place with an, an, in, an intentional design to keep people at specific levels so that other levels can function.
0: The system is working for some people. Like we mentioned, those uh, opioid makers, the fact that they had $880 million to donate to uh, political action, you know, committees over the span of nine years, uh, something's working really well exactly. for them. So
1: what I, change... I doubt they're <laughs> eager.
0: <to change>. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, w- uh, what Changes should be made to the system. What should our next congressman do to help improve education for our kids in PA 16? What actions would you like to see them take?
1: I really need to see them advocate for more. And I know that money always isn't the answer, but it, it needs to get. We need to get our footing. And we, you know, we got Erie did get a, a fourteen million uh, bailout. We did, we mm-hmm. did, but that didn't even bring us up to to, to cover the negative that we were already facing. We have. I mean, there were so many years where this gap just kept increasing because our tax base is, is small. We have a, a large city, but we have so many nonprofits like that are downtown that are in this, or we have pilot agreements, or we have lertives, um in place that our tax base was really small, and so the the, the burden fell on our. Our um, constituents who are struggling with poverty or who are on fixed incomes, and that's just not—that's not fair. That's not fair that we had these huge corporations getting breaks while our are the ones who are struggling just to make ends meet. were having to carry the the load for the for the for the district. Um, and so what we need to see is we need leadership who's going to fight for the funding and fight for things to change so that our kids can get, you know, new textbooks, that our schools can get the roofs fixed, so that our schools um, don't have to lay off any more teachers because that's, you know, where we're heading is if the money's not there, something's got to give. And if what's going to give is is curriculum, um, buildings, and and teachers, and that's just not fair. It's not fair.
0: Yeah, it's a a foundation. You know, you can do only so much with good intentions and you need need funding to get it done. So my last question for you, Tyler, is, you know, these two issues we talked about, curtailing the opioid epidemic and improving the educational system in our community, what if we don't, Act now on both these issues, because a lot of these have been kind of pushed down the road, or I don't say people crossing their fingers that it would get better. What would that mean for the Erie community? What would that mean for this entire district here in PA 16 if we don't act with some urgency and make some progress in these areas?
1: it's going to mean uh, a loss of a whole lot of lives as I mean to break it down super simple is we will be burying more of our loved ones, more of our children. Um, we will be um, struggling watching more people go into systems get lost in systems, I mean, we're, I'm talking about child welfare systems, uh, the criminal justice system, um, we will see the collapse of public education um, in this area. Um, if we don't figure out how to get the funding uh, situated because we're going to see schools have to be shut down. We're going to have to see, you know, more students uh, crammed in classrooms, which is going to mean that there's going to be a mass exodus to go on things like cyber schools. And what we just talked about is the parents aren't home because they're working more. And so when kids are left to their own devices because their parents aren't there, you're going to see an increase in, in crime rates. You're going to see an increase in um, a lot of things that aren't positive for the community um, when you just keep kicking the bucket down the road, uh, other kids down the road for the, for the next person to pick it up. If we don't act now, things are going to get exponentially worse um, for everybody, especially for our kids.
0: Got it. But I guess the good news is we can act now. There are things that we, we absolutely can do, and, can and a big one is, uh, is voting on November 6th.
1: It is imperative that we know our candidates and that we elect leaders who are going to have, uh, the community's best interest at hand, not their own. It is, and I can't emphasize that enough. Getting in and getting involved in local elections, um, changes the game for your community. It's imperative that we, we get out and we vote. We have to, we have to move. It's, we can't just stay stagnant on this.
0: Got it. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for your time today for shedding some light for us on these two uh, important topics and even bigger thanks for all your efforts that you've done, uh, whether it's through the school board or the other activities that you have uh, to help individuals uh, in our area. So thank
1: you very much for that. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for letting me come on. Jim.
0: Our podcast today is over, but there's still more that we need to do that Tyler and I just alluded to. For democracy to work, we can't be bystanders. We have to participate. You can help by sharing this episode with your family and at least one or two on the fence. Maybe I'll vote. Maybe I won't vote voters uh, who live in our district. And then you can vote on Election Day. Let's surprise the special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November Six, and once again, put people first. I'm Jim Roddy. Thanks for listening to October Surprise.